Welcome to the Self Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at Self Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. Amen. Good morning. I'm Steve, one of the pastors here. It happened in March of 2004. Penny and I were in Hawaii. It's the only time we've ever been there. We were there with some other pastors for a week-long conference with Wayne Cordero, who is a pastor and author who lives there. And I remember, I think it was the first day he said to us, tomorrow morning, I want you to show up at this park at five in the morning with some, like, shorts on and jogging shoes. We're going to exercise. And I thought, sure. I've been playing racquetball once a week for a hard hour, several games in that hour. I must be in pretty good shape, right? So we show up, and it's still dark, and there's this big park with a sidewalk all the way around, and it's a mile loop around it. And he said, we're going to run two miles. And I thought, "I, I can handle that. And we took off, and the first mile went okay. And it was somewhere in the second mile when I just had to start walking. And I remember, I think it was God saying to me, you're not in as good a shape physically as you thought you were. And you're not in as good a shape spiritually as you think you are. It was a wake-up call for me. I wasn't tending my soul. I wasn't paying attention to rhythms that would help me keep healthy physically, emotionally, spiritually. A second wake-up call came also when we were living in Bellingham, Washington. Our kids were young, and it was Christmas morning. I don't remember which year, but as was tradition, we were all in our jammies, and we went down to the Christmas tree, and it felt like... Greed was the the highest priority that morning. What's for me? Open the present. Put it aside. Do I get any more? What else is for me? How come she gets more than I do? How come he... You know the feeling. Maybe you've had that in your family. And Penny and I said, something's got to change. We thought Christmas was about Jesus and giving to others. And it's become this day of hoarding. I'll tell you a little bit later how we resolved that. We're in this Advent series looking at the minor prophets. Um, Minor, not because they're not important as Alex taught us, but just because they wrote small books. And today we're in Malachi, the very last book in the Old Testament. If you know where Matthew is, page back a page, and you'll find Malachi. In a sense, Malachi is also a wake-up call. The name Malachi means messenger or one who carries something heavy that needs to be shared. And he writes as one of the last voices, perhaps the last voice to the people of God before about 450 years of darkness and waiting for Jesus to come.
We see in this book, God's, and it's typical of all the prophets, God is concerned about certain things. And he gives kind of a warning. If these certain things don't change, this is what's going to happen. That's typical of how all the prophets write. And the first wake-up call or message from God is this. I love you, but I'm not pleased with you. If you look at chapter 1, verse one or two, I have loved you right from the beginning of the book. God is reminding them, I love you. But in verse 10, he says very clearly, but I'm not pleased with you. Is that possible to say both of those things? I love you, but I'm not pleased with you. If you're a parent, you understand that, right? There's times when we tell our kid, man, I love you. There's nothing you can do to make me not love you, but I'm not pleased with your choices right now or your actions, right? That's what God is saying to his people. What were some of the things that God uh, was displeased with? Here's, here's what the Bible says. Here's a whole list of them. You bring unacceptable offerings. You turn up your nose at me. You don't honor my name. You've turned away from me. Your teaching causes others to stumble. You pick and choose which laws to follow. You marry people of other religions. You don't keep your marriage vows. You've twisted, you have a twisted understanding of good and evil. You practice magic. There's adultery, lying, underpaying employees, taking advantage of, of widows and orphans and foreigners. They were withholding tithes and offerings. And after the long list of people say, but God, you don't care about us. Like they have the audacity when they're doing all of these things to say, God, you don't care. Where are you? Don't you notice us? I wonder if sometimes God would give us a wake-up call. I wonder what he would say to you or to me. I, I feel like he often does that in my life. He says, hey, Steve, let's, this, isn't, this isn't where I think you want to be if you're a devoted follower of mine. The message continues, but I haven't given up on you. There's a whole list of things that God says, I'm not pleased with you, but chapters three and four, he, he says very clearly, I haven't given up on you. Here's the glimmer of hope during this time of darkness. And remember, we talked about Advent as being kind of a dark season of waiting and wondering when, when will God come through? Here are the glimpses. Malachi chapter three. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare a way before me. Chapter four, verse five. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Do you know who he's talking about? John the Baptist. In the New Testament, we read these words. John says, I am the voice of the one calling in the wilderness. In Matthew, Jesus says of John, Elijah must come first, and he has come already, referring to John. Mark uses these verses to describe John the Baptist. So 450 years earlier, the prophet Malachi is saying, there will be hope. There will be a messenger. He will prepare the way for the Messiah. And then there's this glimmer of hope from chapter 4. 
But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you'll go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Most scholars feel that that phrase, the son of righteousness, is also a reference to Jesus. John Wesley, in his famous Christmas carol that we just sang earlier, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, writes these words, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. You know where he gets those words? From Malachi. That prophet writing over 400 years prior to Jesus' coming. Then Malachi steps in with some harsh words. These are words from God. And of all the complaints that God listed in those chapters, he zeroes in on their way they spend their money. And because Malachi devotes so many verses to that in chapter 3, we're going to talk about that for a few minutes this morning. And maybe it's appropriate at Christmas time when we're spending money on different gifts and we're, we're trying to be generous in many different ways, maybe it is appropriate that we also mention what the Bible teaches about giving back to God. God says, you're ripping me off. Have you ever had something stolen? When we lived in Bellingham, I had a little 14-foot aluminum fishing boat with an outboard motor locked to the back of the boat. But the only place I could park it was out in front of the house. And one morning I woke up and the motor was missing. Someone had broken the lock and taken the motor. And if you've had something stolen, you know what it feels like. First, you're angry and you feel violated. And who would do this? And, and then I'm looking at all the pawn shops, like who's trying to sell a motor out there? Where's my motor, right? Never found it. I wonder how God feels. He uses the same imagery. You, you're cheating. You're, you're like stealing from me. And in God can anticipate what the people are thinking. And he says, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. And you ask, how are we robbing you, God? In tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, your whole nation, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will be not enough room to store it. You're withholding tithes and offerings. So God implies that it's, it was theirs to give, and they were choosing not to give it. They had gone from tithing to tipping God. Bring the whole tithe. Why, what would go through people's mind to, to make them decide, I'm not going to give God much or as much as maybe he would want me to give. I could imagine people thinking, well, I don't feel like giving. Well, a tithe, well, that's too much. I can't afford that. Or what am I going to get out of it? I'm giving to God, and I feel like I'm not getting anything back from him. 
Or I'm already giving some of my time to him. Why should I give some of my money? Or God, the cost of living is going up. I can't afford to give. Or I'm already volunteering with my talents. Isn't that good enough? Or I'm on staff and they don't pay me very much. Why should I give back to God? Or I honestly don't have anything left at the end of the month. Or it's just not a priority. I, I really don't even think about it much. What is this tithing thing anyway? The word tithe means a tenth. Now you, most of you can calculate a tenth. If I have $5,000, a tenth is 500, right? You drop one zero at the end of any number, that's the tenth of it. Where did this idea of tithing show up in the Bible? It actually shows up before the law was given. We see Abram coming back from um, a battle. He's got all the bounty. He meets a priest, Melchizedek, and he gives him a tenth just out of gratitude, thanking God for the victory. Jacob in Genesis 28 has a dream, and, and he says, God, I want to give you 10%, a tenth of everything I have. Then in Leviticus, we see God teaching his people that it was becoming a law, that you, one out of every 10 animals was God. You just, they would walk under a stick, and you couldn't pick and choose. Um, oh, I'm going to give God the worst one, or no, no, you just, the 10th one, every 10th belonged to God. In Numbers 18, God explained that this is how I'm going to provide for the workers in my house, the Levites. They're not going to get an inheritance, but you're all going to give and then they will be provided for. And then in the same chapter, he says to the Levites, and oh, by the way, you should tithe of the tithe. People are giving to you, and you should also give a tenth back to God. But then there was more. There was uh, jubilee celebrations where they were to give. Every third year, they were to give another tithe to help support the orphans and the widows and the poor. Some scholars have calculated that all those Old Testament tithes probably added up to 23% uh, that they were obligated to give. And then there were offerings. That was above the tithe. That was just, it's time to rebuild the temple, bring in, or build the temple, bring in jewelry or whatever goods you have. And sometimes their giving was so generous, there's one point where Moses had to say, stop, we have enough. Thank you for your generosity. Those were free will offerings. Let me summarize what I see in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, but throughout. God's desire with the tithe was that there would always be an abundance in his house. Why? To take care of his servants, to provide for the poor, the widows, the orphans, and for community celebrations. There were several times in their yearly calendar where God said, stop working, take a week, and just come and celebrate. Come and worship bring lots of food, like a party for God and with God. There are many other teachings in the Old Testament about giving. I just picked up a couple more. The wise have wealth and luxury, but fools spend whatever they get. I think if, if you find yourself in a spot where you're spending every dollar every month, the Bible would say that's kind of foolish. Maybe you need to re-evaluate what's happening. Or some people are always greedy for more, but the godly love to give. Now, many people say, is this just an Old Testament thing, this tithing idea? Actually, Jesus talked more about possessions and money 
than he did about hell and heaven combined. In fact, his first topic, favorite topic was the kingdom of God, and the very next topic he talked most, most about was our possessions. Why is that? Because Jesus saw money as a competing God. He said you can't love both God and money. So you say, well, we're in the New Testament. We're all under grace. We're not under the law. And I agree, we're, un we're under grace. So under grace, would God want us to be more generous than the law or less generous than the law? There is this one passage in Matthew 23 where he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. These are like little leaves or little seeds, right? And you can see these Pharisees dumping out a pile of these and actually counting. One cumin seed goes to God, I get to keep the other nine. One mint leaf goes to God, I get to keep the other nine, right? They were very particular about that, but Jesus says, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, like justice and mercy and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. He could have said, tithing is outdated, it's not important, but he's, he, he reaffirms the tithe, but he said, it's more of a heart issue. It's not a money issue, first of all, because things like justice and mercy and faithfulness and compassion, loving God and loving others, those are the things that are most important to Jesus. And as we develop a heart of compassion, we also want to give back to God. Tithing can easily slip us right into legalism, and Jesus always pulls us away from legalism. I'm, I am not here to guilt anybody into giving anything. That's, Jesus doesn't do that. that. That's not the way of Jesus. He always moves us towards a genuine change of heart. But legalism says this. Okay, good. I've checked the box. I gave my tenth. I get to do what I want with the other 90%. And I think Jesus would say, wait, it's all mine. Don't, don't think of the other 90 as yours, but how can you steward all of it on my behalf? A heart of generosity says, how can I give more? So why is tithing such a big deal to God? Does he want my money? No, he wants my heart. He wants me to become more and more like him. And he, was a gener he is a generous God. Jesus explained it this way. Where your treasure is, that's where you'll find your heart. So, I don't know if you keep a checkbook still or if you have credit card uh, statements or a budget. But if you look down that, it's, that is actually a list of your priorities. For example, if your car payment is more than what you give to God, it's a statement of priority. It's not, it's just a mirror. It's not meant to be condemning. It's just, it's just a fact. These are my priorities. Where your treasure is, Jesus says, there your heart will be also. So we, by, by becoming generous people, we reflect a generous God. God so loved the world that he gave. It's probably the highest expression of love is giving 
Jesus said, even to the point of giving our life for someone else, greater love has no one than this. Did you know that on the average, Christians give about 2.5% to their church? And I wonder if God would say to some people today, you're kind of ripping me off too. That's maybe how he feels about that. As you consider whatever you choose to give to this church or whatever church you might want to give to, um, I think the Bible would teach us to give a percentage. Uh, the Bible would teach us to give regularly on a scheduled basis and to give to God first. Not at the end of the month to see what's left, but priorities get paid first. If, if we have a house payment, we pay that first because we don't want to lose our house, right? Or a car payment or whatever else we have. Um, priorities get, get paid first. Uh, the Bible encourages us to give to God first, off the top. When I teach or coach uh, young couples in their pre-marriage coaching, I teach them to pick a percentage, five if they want to, ten if they choose to, uh, and then develop a budget or a spending plan around that. Um, South is so blessed to have so many generous people, people who love to give to the church. I was taught to give. I was always taught that the first, the first dollar out of every 10 is God's to give it to the church. And I think in my early years, I did that because I thought I should. And now I love to give. I do it because I want to. But for Penny and I, in our 39 years of marriage, we've always given 10% to the church and then other, other missionaries and missions and, you know, the poor, all the other things we like to support, for us is on top of that. And except for the last four years when I ran a bakery, I, I was the, we were on a pastor's salary um, those years, and we felt like we wanted Penny to be home and, and not be a working mom. Uh, she worked plenty at home. And so we lived on little, and God always Provided. I'm here to tell you that God always provides. I remember when my salary was 13000 a year. I remember when it was 22000 a year, when it was 24000 a year. God always provided. We didn't go out to eat much. We never drove new cars. We washed Ziploc bags. We clipped coupons. We did whatever it takes. But God always provided. Now I get, we give generously because it's an expression of our love for God and our love for his church. It helps us grow in generosity. It pushes back against that world's mentality that we're consumers and God sees us as managers or stewards of what he's entrusted to us. You may disagree with me and that's fine, but I think if you don't tithe when you make 30,000 a year, you won't tithe when you make 300,000 a year because it's not a money issue. It's a heart issue. It's a matter of priorities. Did you know that our church tithes? Out of every $100 that is given to our church this year, $11 goes out to support missions and missionaries. We've already given away $71,000 since July 1st. 20 of that went to Afghan refugees and over 50000 to the missions, agencies, and missionaries that we love to support. Here's just for a minute, let me explain. Here's how our church finances work. Uh, Alex and I meet with the, with the board of elders, and we think, we look at the numbers carefully. 
about what we anticipate we'll need for the next year. And we do this in the spring because our fiscal year starts uh, July 1. So in this fiscal year, um, we're projecting we'll need about $1.2 million. And then we divide that into 52 weeks and we come up with a weekly number. And so this week, our ministry plan I told you that the fiscal year is July 1. Our ministry plan would say that we would need 530000 as of this week. And year to date, actual giving has been four sixty. So there's about a $70,000 difference. Now we anticipate some people love to give end of the year gifts and all of that may be gone by the end of December. Um, we don't know. Uh, but, but that's how that works in our church. Here's God's message. Put me to the test. Just try me on this one. I don't know where God says that anywhere else in the Bible. But when it has to do with giving of our finance, he says, go ahead and test me. Just try me out. If you've never given a certain percentage and you want to try God, test God out, do it, he says. Here's what the text says. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. One of the signs that we've drifted from God is that we stop giving to God. And remember, God wants to have an abundance in his house so that all of his servants are well taken care of so that we're able to take care of the needy folks among us and in our community who come to us for needs, the, the widows, the orphans, and that we can have good celebrations. Have you ever put God to the test when it comes to your finances and giving? This season of giving gifts is a great time to reconsider uh, our, and reevaluate our own giving. I told you that we had a wake-up call in our family one Christmas morning. Here's what we decided. It may not be for everybody. This is what we decided. Christmas Day is going to be a day of giving to others. So we're not going to open any gifts on Christmas Day. We, we, as a family, would pick a different day and call it our gift-giving day. That's really original, isn't it? Um, this is our gift-giving day. Often it would be a, a day or a few days before Christmas, which our kids loved because they got their gifts a few days before their friends did. And that was the day that we didn't go anywhere. We stayed in our jammies. We went down to the tree. We just enjoyed opening gifts. And this is how we did it. If you bought or made a gift for someone, you take it to them and present it to them. And then you get to watch, we all get to watch as they open that gift. And then the, then the next person, and then the next person. We started learning to ask a different question at Christmas time of our kids and other kids. We started asking, What was the favorite gift that you gave this Christmas? You know, the other question that too many people love to ask kids. But it just started to change their mindset. And what did we do with December 25th? It became a day of giving. I'll share a few ideas that we did. Um, one, one or more years, we took our kids and served meals at the local rescue mission. We taught them December 25th is Jesus' birth, 
supposedly Jesus' birthday when we celebrate, and it's about giving to others. We took homemade goodies to the 911 operators who had to work Christmas Day and the police officers and the fire department, and we thanked them. We know that you're a, it's a sacrifice. You're not at home with your family. Thank you for serving our community today. We visited nursing homes, and we would ask the supervisors, tell us which of your residents has no family in town. They won't get any visitors today. And we became their family. We knocked on their door. We had a plate of cookies. We sang Christmas carols, and we went in and visited with them. And if they would let us, we would pray with them. We, one year, we took candy to the local jail, enough for all the, the, the officers and the inmates. Um, we would often go visit Grandma and Grandpa when they were in the nursing homes on Christmas Day. We would prepare a meal in our home and invite singles and people who don't have family in the area, new people in church and widows and whoever God would put on our heart to invite. And so we would join together and make the meal and, and serve others on that day. I don't know, what can you do to help make Christmas into a, a season that is shaping you into a generous person, shaping your kids and your family and your grandkids into generous people? I want to leave you with some questions you could ask yourself. When is the last time I took a serious look at how much I'm giving? Am I coming to God empty-handed? Am I tipping God or tithing? Do I want to give more to God? And this is a key question. Do I want to give more to God? And, you, and your honest answer may be no. But at least ask yourself, if not, why not? Because again, it's a heart issue. What are my excuses for not tithing? Can I or can we bump up our percentage this next year? I told you that the church gives 11% this year. I'd love for it to be 12 next year and 13 the next and 14 the next. Last church I served at, they had dropped down to 2% in, in their giving away before they realized what had happened. And they said, our goal is 20. And they bumped it up 1% a year just to practice what they preach. Like we, we teach giving a percentage, but we also practice that. We can do that in our families as well. Is this all I can give? Does my giving reflect generosity? Am I doing my part to make sure that the church has an abundance? How much do you want me to give? This is a key question. Ask God. I'm not here to tell you what you should give. Ask God. Seriously, God, what do you want us to give? What would be right for us? There are seasons in our life when we come needy. And all we, we just, we need help. We have nothing to give. But there are also seasons when we have an abundance and we want to ask God, what do you want me to give? Does the way we celebrate Christmas reflect a heart of generosity? I don't know. Maybe those questions will help you process some of what Malachi is saying today. And then a few suggested practices. Give some of your money to God this week. It doesn't have to be a lot, but just something. Letting go of some money and just saying, God, I love you. I want to express love for you by giving to you. Make a plan for giving regularly. Maybe as you think about January and the new year and you get all the Christmas gifts paid off and you're thinking about what the next year is going to look like, you're going to be able to give more if you have a plan. Some people call it a budget or a spending plan. Uh, but sit down and, and look at your income and your expenses 
The third would be give some money to a needy person this week. Again, I would say you do this because of what it does for you, not for them, okay? It, just put it out of your mind whether they're gonna use it wisely or squander it or buy this or buy that with it. Just give it away because that act of opening your hand and handing some of your money to some stranger does something to you in your formation of becoming more like Christ. Talk about giving with your kids. They should know if you tithe and, or give and how much and who you support financially and why you do that. How about reevaluating the way that you celebrate Christmas? Again, I said it before, God's de desire is not, first of all, for your money. It's for your heart. And as an expression of love, then you might find yourself that you want to become more and more generous in your giving. This is Frances Havergal. She was an English poet and a hymn writer from the 1800s. Starting at four years of age, she began to memorize scripture. Eventually, she memorized the Psalms, Isaiah, and most of the New Testament. She wrote hymns like these, like a river glorious, who is on the Lord's side, and take my life and let it be. You notice the jewelry box next to her in this picture. She writes that she, she called it a jewelry cabinet, and she says it was fit for a countess. And then one day God said, I want you to get rid of that. I want you to give that away. And so she did. And she began to write the words of a song that go like this. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Let them flow in endless praise. Take my silver and my gold. Not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. She understood that at the core of being a generous person is giving our life to God. That's really what he wants. Our heart, our life, everything about us. And maybe you've been listening this morning and you've been thinking about giving and other gifts and Christmas, but the deeper question is, does God have your life? Have you ever come to the point where you've said, you can have it all, God? Yeah, it includes my money and my savings and my health and my resources. You can have it all. I just want to give it all to you. That's what this song is about. Let's stand and sing together. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. You can give online at southfellowship.org give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks for listening, South Family. Have a great rest of your day.